Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Welcome to Business is Unusual. This is Aisla, and I'm here today with Rena DeLevy, a consultant who specializes in compassionate leadership. Welcome to the show, Rena. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I am really excited to talk more about what you're up to because I, I know it's such an important topic that, and I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what compassionate leadership is. So I'm excited to help set the record better. Don't like to say straight. And, and demystify. <laughs> demystify. It, Before we hop into that, what's a hobby of yours that you think would surprise folks? Oh gosh. Singing? Drawing? I don't know that would surprise anyone who knows me though. Really? <laughs> you sing yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I took many years of singing lessons. Before I had my child, and then that's on the back burner for now. But yeah, I love singing. Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Will you tell folks a little bit about what your business is? Sure. Yeah. I've been teaching compassionate leadership for 17 years after about 18 years working in corporate. And compassionate leadership, I understand it's a very common phrase now, but when I started doing it 17 years ago, people thought I was wackadoodly-doo. And, and I was like, I'm okay with that because I'm here to change the world, make it better. And I believe compassion is the path. Hmm. I could talk endlessly, so I'm gonna I'm gonna allow you to a ask some questions. So there's some structure to the interview. However, you want to show up is gonna be delightful, and I do want to know more. This is business as unusual, mm -hmm. and so what do you feel is unusual about what you do? I feel like there's a lot there. I am and have always been fifty fifty right brain left brain. Mm -hmm. Back in 1873, when I started working, I'm <laughs> only kidding. Long time ago, when I started working, it was really understood that you were either left or right brain, mm. and that anybody who was half and half was weird. And so it took me a while to grow into, okay, you can call me whatever you want. I am half and half. Now it's much more common and not considered unusual or quirky in any case. So I bring both sides. My background is in graphic design and art direction. So my audience is primarily in the creative world. I do think every human is creative in some way or another. Um, so I've worked with traditional creatives, meaning art directors, writers, that niche, but I've also worked with lawyers and construction. It's the creative brain, the brain that is open to seeing things in an iterative way as opposed to a linear way. Those are the brains that most uh, get what I'm teaching. The iterative brain, excuse me, the linear brain people, the accountants and things like that, they say, oh, that's interesting. Say more, and it just it takes a little bit more to understand because I really live in the nuance um, and also in the, am I allowed to curse? Mm -hmm. in, in, and in the no bullshit, let's get to it, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I will straddle both the, here's the spreadsheet, because God, I love a spreadsheet. 
And also, when you're trying to communicate that abstract concept, how can that be communicated in such a way that everyone will understand? So I'm comfortable in both the spreadsheet and the abstract is what I'm trying to say. And so when I'm teaching using compassion as a business tool, uh, the key phrase that I use is compassion and accountability in equal measure, um, because most um, left brain people, you know, the more linear thinking, they're like compassion. That's ridiculous. That doesn't belong in the workplace. It's all about accountability. Whereas the right brain people, the more creative, iterative brain people are like, don't hold me back. Don't give me boundaries. Just let me feel it and do it, right? And we need both in the business world. We need both in the parenting world and the friendship with the whole world. But we're talking about business here. We need both in the business world, whether you work in marketing or you work in a bank. Um, yeah. And that's what I teach specifically related to how we connect and communicate with each other. So you said that you were in the corporate world and then moved into this. And I'm assuming there's like a story around that or you're sharing a little bit about what is it that set the stage for this to be something that you saw? What did you, what story or experience can you share that helps people to get into how that awareness came together, whether it was like a moment or some series of experiences that led to that? Yeah. So that's a great entree. Thank you very much. I I was, I'm also quite woo-woo, meaning I like the ephemeral. I like knowing and feeling that I am part of it all. I, I actually hug trees. And I also, uh, like I said before, love doing spreadsheets. So I live in the material and the, uh, the spiritual at the same time. And so I bring that to everything I do. The thing is, when I was growing up, I was all spirituality. And it was like, where are you? You got to come back and do your schoolwork. And so I tried to twist myself into fitting into the material world. And it was incredibly lonely and frustrating. And I just felt lost, which is why I, sure, I'm an artist, because I would just draw. Just leave me alone. I'm going to sit in a corner and draw. And over the years, I started, I went to art school, I was a graphic designer, I was an art director in advertising. And then at a certain point, I was asked to start managing. And once I started managing, I was like, wait, no wonder we were always behind schedule. And I could see from the top of the mountain, I was no longer in the valley. No wonder. It's like a, a domino effect of when one thing is late, it affects everything else. And I began streamlining which mm. was a word I was never taught, never knew. And I just started to do it. And then I just started to figure out spreadsheets in Excel because this is a long time ago. And, and so I just meandered my way into operational efficiency from this create this 50-50 brain. And to your question, it was over time that I started to come into who I am and stop hiding these other parts of me, specifically right around, I would say, 35, 36 years old, where I just said, I am tired of hiding who I am. I am tired of masking my sensitivity, all language I didn't know at the time. And I'm tired of masking my spirituality. And I'm also really tired of being an asshole because <laughs> I was... <t> <laughs> yeah. I was taught to be 
a fear-based manager because those were the only models we had. Mm -hmm. And so I was really effective at it because remember, I was masking and trying to fit in and trying to rise up the ladder because that's what I was told I needed to do, right? I was also told I needed to marry and marry a Jewish guy and move to the sun, like all things I've never done, right? And because I've just followed my own path. And when I had that realization, I thought, you know what, there's this thing called meditation and mindfulness, maybe I'll check it out. And so I started to dabble in meditation and then 9-11 happened. And it was, and I lived and worked in Manhattan at that time. Hmm. And it was, and I am a New Yorker, like that, my whole childhood was, when can I get to New York City and live there? And it was, of course, devastating and very centering. And I decided, you know what, that's it. If I never rise up the corporate ladder again, if I never make it to VP or EVP or blah, 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 because I'm going to let my whole spiritual sensitive self show up in the workplace, so be it. The, it all came down to who do I want to be in this world? Right. And how am I going to live that in every aspect of my life? And so that was a seminal moment um, where I started to write down that asshole management style didn't work. What would feel better? You know, it's showing up as my natural empathic self. And so I started to work with that. I also, shortly thereafter, found a new therapist who wasn't shaming because I had a therapist who was incredibly shaming. We draw to us what is familiar. And so I found this new therapist who is all about compassion and Buddhism and mindfulness. So I was like, what? And so Mm -hmm. she really helped me learn to like myself. That Mm -hmm. is the greatest turning point. That right there is it. Gotcha. And once I started to like myself, I began to fully show up as me in my whole life because I didn't have anything to hide anymore. I didn't have to prove anything. I didn't have to hide anything. I didn't, I could just be. Yeah. And that level of contentment, that level of self-connection, self-awareness grows over time. And it's been many years since then, and about 20, 22, something like that years. And it just gets deeper and more delicious by the day, even through the really horrifying, shitty times. And there have been quite a few in my life and since then. And that is really what I teach through teaching how to connect and collaborate and communicate with your colleagues. That's a whole lot of C words. How to do all of that by showing up as you. Yeah. And what I find consistently fascinating is the people I work with, and they're of all genders, all ethnicities, religions, ages, generations, background, just the whole sexuality, the whole spectrum of humanity, Mm -hmm. the consistent thread through all is, oh my God, I really don't like myself yet. No one's ever taught me that language. And whether they use those words or not, that's what comes up with, no, I can't say that. Or can I do that at work? And so that is what is so screamingly scrumptious about the work that I do. It's something you're talking about that I find 
important. It's a little bit of a deviation. So if you're like, no, I don't want to do that. I feel like there's multiple camps around like business development. And there's a sort of reflexive kind of old school camp that's sort of about uh, compartmentalizing and mm-hmm. deviating or, or diminishing that human part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, for, and I know from what you're telling me, that's a little bit the, the corporate world that you came up in. Mm-hmm. And so did, how did you overcome that? Did, or how did you address that in terms of, is there a business case that you made that, that like people, because I know, for example, when people talk about like women in leadership, the women in leadership often make companies more resilient, more profitable. There's tons of studies, which is not to say anybody's reading them or listening to them. I'm just curious in terms of this piece, what are the, what were the tactics that you found to be effective to, to get people to sit up and pay attention? Because this absolutely was not 22 years ago, something that was on anyone's radar and or given any modicum of respect, in, especially in the corporate world, like some nonprofits maybe. But in that business world, and I don't know if it's a business case or just I'm curious, like how how you created a consultancy that focused on this at a time when it was likely to get you laughed out of the room, honestly. Uh, Before the consultancy, I was working at a fashion house where the expectation was that we would work until 10 o'clock minimum every night and put our whole everything into the business. And I did it for seven years. In the eighth year, I had another great review. This was before I committed myself to compassionate leadership and using compassion and accountability in equal measure. But I was like, I was heading in that direction. This is before 9-11. And I sat down with my boss for another great review, which felt wonderful. And I said, listen, I will work late every night but Thursday. And on Thursday, I'm going to leave at six. And she said, good luck. And every Thursday, I would leave at six and get in the elevator and people would walk by and be like, oh, half a day. Oh, early lunch and make snide comments. And within a year, I quit. Yeah. Because I was penalized. I was due to be promoted. There was a great opportunity. And they said no. Not my boss. My boss was great, but the she was the CMO, the chief marketing officer, the CEO um, said no. And, and I said, okay, because I'd already found another job and I was like, do I take that other job? And so that was clear. And then I went to the new job where there was much more of a, another fashion house, where it was much more of a, what we would call a work-life balance compared to today. No, but at that time, yes. And so I didn't ask for permission. I promised, I made a commitment to myself. I said, don't ask for permission. Just walk in and show up as you and see what the heck is going to happen. Because as I said, once you learn to who you are, it doesn't mean you say, oh, I'm the most perfect. You say, I am perfect as I am with my flaws. I was like, okay, you know what? I'll find another job. Before that, I was so fear-based and managed with fear and so freaking terrified nobody will ever hire me I jumped like a bunny at whatever was asked of me once you you like yourself you're like you know what I'll figure it out of course with the internet now it just makes it much easier and so I didn't ask for permission I just started showing up in this way Mm. and people responded really well 
mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be treated with respect. Who, who would choose being yelled at? And I yelled, oh my God, it's so embarrassing when I think about it now. And I've talked to some of those people who were on my team. I'm so sorry I yelled at you. And they're like, Rena, that's what we all had to do at the time. It's all good. I'm sure there's still people out there who dislike me. But in any case, that happened. I didn't ask for permission. I just started showing up in this way. Yeah. And then when I went out on my own, which is 17 years ago, I tried to use the word compassion and nobody would respond. Hmm. Oh, kumbaya, you're going to make us do a meditation? And so I realized that I had to go under the radar and I would only use numbers and statistics and percentages. Hmm. And reduce your attrition rate, increase your productivity, shortcut your, expedite your life cycle by a percentage and that's a percentage and save this much. And people would bring me in and love me. And then I would under the radar teach the same thing. Mm-hmm. And truly, not until the pandemic was I really able to freely and openly say compassion, managing anxiety in the workplace, like yourself as you are. Before that, people were like, oh my God, you're so kumbaya. You're such a hippy dippy, which I am, but I'm also very business. The fallacy to say that they are not intertwined. Right. The compartmentalization of the, the rational and the artistic and emotional and intuitive is a lie right. that does not actually speak to our ability to be successful. And at the same time, it's a lie we have to constantly confront. It does. That lie directly benefits white supremacy. Yeah. Am I allowed to be that direct? You are allowed to be that. I'm always the one bringing it up. So I was giving it to you. The same way the binary directs white supremacy, all of this fear-based structure is created to keep all of us in fear and distracted so that we can't actually connect and collaborate. Because if we actually did connect and truly collaborate, we'd be like, okay, stop yelling at me. Or in in the workplace, or that's an unrealistic deadline. You you can't. Mm -hmm. And so that commitment to what kept the few, most often white men, wealthy at the top, versus that's what our country is fighting, or the whole globe is fighting right now is white supremacy versus true equity, equality, inclusion, all of that. Connection Uh and community. It's interesting because it's hidden in plain sight. We are raised, I was uh, actually in a training right before this, The Art of Interrupting Racism. And it's one of the things that we were talking about. And I can honestly say that I was trained and absolutely taught to diminish my feelings, but especially my unpleasant ones. Mm Mm-hmm. And to really suppress that part of myself as a human Mm -hmm. first and then as a worker, because that's Mm -hmm. how you are professional or whatever. And the ways that it and it's we hear it all the time. It's oh, don't be so emotional or whatnot. And the reality is what you're talking about is that's usually a way to keep us from being connected and in community, which Mm -hmm. is the antidote to a lot of these things that are causing us so much harm as people and in the planet and as families and all that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's right there. It's right in front of us. That's what's happening. And yet it feels revelational when it when we notice, oh, wait, actually, that's the problem. <laughs> this yeah. thing. Well, there is no question in my mind that I was taught language and 
ways of thinking uh, that directly support white supremacy, even though there was this little, this little thing in the back of my head. Really? Okay. But everybody feels this way. So I must be, in other words, I was gaslit my whole life, right? We all were to say, oh, that's not, what are you talking about? Hold your purse close to your chest when you see a black man walking towards you. When in reality, that's not at all the case at all. And if we look at the levels of domestic violence in this country and the, the, of course, the domestic terrorism, all the shootings, it's all, it's 99% white men, right? And it's just lie after lie, either by omission of information and or by outright lie, which means in the workplace, I then walked into the workplace thinking, now I've been promoted to manager. I can't hire that person because they're not white, right? Yeah. Basically, not cis they're, head white. But they you won't use have, words like professional or right. they're not a good fit. I don't think committed. they'll, the culture of the company, they just, I don't think that it yeah. would be a good alignment. Yep. And then once I was asked to, in the 90s, I think it was, or early, early 2000, like maybe the year 2000, Rena, you're running this department. Can you please make a list of all the people on your team? And I had a hundred person team or something who's white, who's, and default. And I was like, are you kidding me? You want me to make a list of race and gender and sexuality and whatever? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, can I say no? And they said, no, because we want to make sure that we hire across the spectrum. And I was like, man, this is bullshit. But I don't, I didn't know what to do. I got to keep my job. I got to pay my rent or my mortgage. That's when I started to see the shift of what I call cover your butt, not necessarily genuine interest in. And you take it all the way to, I was consulting at a company last summer and I said, you need a new project manager. You need a head of project management. And great, Rena, can you hire that person? I said, sure. So I I said, help me out. Here's the job description. And I sent it to the HR department at this company. And they sent me marginal candidate after marginal candidate. And they were all white. And I was like, seriously, I don't have a problem. It's just they're marginal. Plus, I'd really like to see a broader spectrum of people because also the company was extremely white. And I felt that it would be beneficial to the company to have different perspectives to actually reach the the client base, the audience, right? So the HR department said, we don't, we, this is all we have. This is our only, this is how we find clients. This is how we find candidates. So I went on LinkedIn and I said, hey, I'm just going to be direct. I'm looking for project managers who are black, Latina, blah, 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 and I just put it out there. And I got great candidates. And I also got super talented candidates who happened to be white and Mm non-white, which I really hate those two categories. And I ended up hiring somebody who wasn't white. Fantastic. And then another, in other words, like that cycle of Mm -hmm. my network is the same because I've been working for 30 something years. And in the beginning, the only people I worked with were white. So my whole network is all white. Mm -hmm. Breaking that cycle and expanding and widening it to meet other talent. Mm -hmm. And and something that you said that I think is important to highlight is that because whiteness is a default expectation, that's the way that we do, that's the place of belonging. When someone 
identifies that we've got, you know, for example, theoretically, maybe something like the Supreme Court, where we've had 75 white men on there. Yeah. And so then someone says, we really want to find someone, a black woman to be a candidate for Supreme Court. And be like, oh, why don't they try to find someone who's qualified? They are. It's just that we don't ever say we're looking for a white man because that's the default that we compare against. Also, the also the default is that the white man is qualified. Right. Which which is is not not always true. Right. I've heard it bandied about on the Internet. Well, why don't they start with someone qualified? They are. Don't you worry. That's going to happen. That's right. It's just that because we don't say out loud that white man is going to be the candidate. That doesn't mean that's not what people are actually unconsciously or consciously honestly going towards. So we have to say out loud other identifiers. But the presumption is underlying that absolutely we're looking for a qualified candidate. Frequently when we find a candidate who is outside the default, but frequently we're outside there. Yeah. That candidate is more qualified because they have to to work to to get there. They don't get it just. Yes. And to speak to your point, oftentimes the white male candidate is maybe not as thoughtful or aware or qualified well, he has, because it hasn't had to be. They don't have to prove themselves at the same level. And it's not, this is not, I know this is going to sound right, but it, it's not about bashing white men that it's about understanding our country and our work culture. And for me, it wasn't about hiring a black woman project manager. It was about ensuring that the project management team had enough diversity of thought and perspective and experience and talent to ensure that the entire project management team could bring this diverse level of experience to creating the projects. So if the team were all of one gender and one race, whatever race, ethnicity, sexual, if the team were all Asian lesbians, that would not be okay, right? The idea is a diverse, which I know everyone is sick of that word. So a combination. Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. To ensure that we are actually showing the melting pot that our country actually is. Yeah, representing all of the, the perspectives and understandings and cultural awarenesses. I feel like and that's where I talk about the business case a little, and I know we're, we're slightly diverting, and I would come back, but the there was that uh, debacle with Kodak when they first made the cameras that recognized smiles, except they didn't recognize black and certain brown faces because the team wasn't from a variety of perspectives exactly. and skin colors. Exactly. And so, therefore, their testing candidates were not, and so they didn't find out until it was put into market. And so that's part of what, and I feel like you're aligned there when you talked about the numbers is what's convenient to me in this whole process is that usually the compassionate, human-centered, accountable thing is actually also a better business choice. Very smart It's just not the better choice. It's Yeah, it's, it's usually very smart for business. It's not usually the choice that privileges certain experiences and people in the same way. And so it gets resistance. But if we were to just base it on the numbers, a lot of the things that we do in terms of equity and diversity are actually better for business. Yes. And that conversation is one that I constantly try to bring forward because it's a harder to argue with numbers, not impossible. <laughs> and also, it's just I love that the numbers bear out the more humane way to be. All right. So it. let's. 
talk about some numbers. If it costs 50 to 100% of a salary to replace a person, let's just go with 75%, okay? In between the 50 and 100. If you have a company that doesn't make space, an emotional, psychological, physical, to some degree, a lot of companies are remote now, but true up rising up the ladder, succession planning space for a diverse group of employees, then those othered employees, the ones who feel left out, which are most often the non-white, right. the black colleagues, the uh, Hispanic colleagues, whatever, they will leave. And therefore, you now need to replace them. So if they cost, you lose actual dollars, hard costs, because now you need to hire a search firm to replace that person and all of that. Then you have the soft costs. The clients that they built a relationship with now have to meet somebody new and start over again. You have to do the orientation. You have to do the internal training. The new person has to learn the office dynamics. The new person has to learn the office protocol. The new, anyway, so it's hundreds and thousands and thousands of dollars that could be saved by respecting each human, mm -hmm. treating them with compassion and accountability in equal measure. We're mm -hmm. not talking just compassion. Compassion is just alone is ineffective in any relationship. We must balance compassion and accountability to say, you didn't get that done on time? What, what happened? As opposed to, you didn't get that done on time? What's happened? What the hell's wrong with you? Which tone of voice, which word choices are going to keep the talent? And which tone of voice and word choices are going to make the talent flee? And yeah. only the mediocre coasters are going to stay. Right. So you're losing the diverse talent and you're losing the top talent when you have that churn and burn fear based leadership. And it's expensive. But. And here's where it gets funky. But it's expensive for HR and the middle managers and even the senior managers. But the executive team still gets their bonuses. And that's where. They don't care because they're fine with the turn and burn because it's still, they're still getting their bonuses. Mm -hmm. You look at Google and Amazon, all of the huge, and they're laying people off. They're cutting their salaries. They're taking away health insurance, but they're fine. Yep. Yeah, no, the C CEOs don't have to, it's like Congress, right? They don't follow the same rules that they expect everybody else to. Thank you, dog. Go up there. Go. She wants to be on our show. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing. Congress, it, they don't live on minimum wage. They have fully funded health care. They, they, and yet they will not authorize that for the rest of us. And right. because why would they? They but, did for me. I'm a white woman. I got all of that. Right. I, and I could pass. I'm Jewish, but nobody paid attention to that because you don't walk around saying, hi, I'm a Jew. Did I get funky looks when I said I'm going to be out for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? And, but that's when we're having the meeting. And when I was younger, I'd be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. When I got older, I was like, reschedule. This is my holiday. 
I'm not yeah. going to make you work on Christmas. And it, it is, there's definitely a hierarchy, which everybody knows. We're not saying that much new here. It's just the awakening out of the trance of just how fear-based the workplace culture is in, in large corporations. I've worked in international banking and pharma and advertising and fashion and retail. So I've got a broad breadth of exposure to these different huge conglomerate industries. In the smaller organizations, the small business of 20 to 200 people, even there, if it's run by what I've seen in my experience, if it's run by a woman, it's much more likely to be a compassionate leadership environment. If it's run by a man, it is not. Mm -hmm. And yeah. even in 20 people or 10 people companies, I've seen, like, I just want to bang my head against a wall. I appreciate you pointing that, that there, once again, those differences in leadership, they have an impact. Differences mm -hmm. make a difference. I will say I've worked with some incredible men, including white mm -hmm. men, who just get it. They just, and, and they've been amazing. And I've promoted them and worked with them and given them every piece of support I was ever able to and watch them soar. And that's very exciting. So again, for those of you listening, it's not all men. It is just a lot. Tell me about advice you've received that has influenced the way you approach your work. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Let's see. Yeah, really the best. Oh, here's an interesting one. There are two pieces of information I got from the shaming, awful therapist I went to that I have used endlessly because I think they're fantastic. I have been still all these years later working on throwing out everything else. But so the two things that she taught me and talk about fear-based management as a therapist, she was completely fear-based. But the, the two good things were no room for interpretation communication, which I love because it just slows down everything. So when somebody would give me a document, I'd be like, okay, I'm missing this piece and this piece. Can you fill that in so that there's no room for interpretation so that when you send the client the email, the client can less likely interpret it differently and then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. And shoot, now I can't remember the other one. Yeah, I can't remember the other one. But no room for interpretation was quite delicious. Oh, and no surprises. That was the other no one. Surprises. No surprises. Exactly. So when I walk into a new client or I'm, I'm consulting, managing a team or something, I say, the only surprise I like is chocolate. No other surprises, please. And so it makes people laugh and they get it. Um, like really, no other surprises. No good. Um, and people understand it because they don't want to be surprised with a new deadline. I'm going to add uh -huh. one piece of guidance, which has really uh, changed my life. And I think I've used it wisely in helping my clients. And this is from the good therapist. Um, and she said, they hired you, show up as you. And I was like, what? I can't do that. I've never been rewarded for being spiritual and empathetic and uh, sensitive. And she was like, but that's who they hired. And yeah. once I started truly showing up like that, then I realized I was also business oriented, organized, um, etc. Yeah. And so I was able to show up as my full self. And so, yeah. 
I know this kind of work can be a little draining. What do you do to keep yourself? And maybe that's not for you, but I'm assuming. What do you do to keep yourself inspired or how do you recharge? That is a crucial question you're asking. Number one, I'm a 22-year meditator, mindfulness practitioner. And so I, at this point, live in a state of awareness, self-awareness, self-compassion, self-accountability, the majority of the time, not all the time. I definitely get dysregulated and whatever, but for the majority, I've been practicing this way of being in the world for 22 years. So you, it becomes second nature. I meditate every day, whether that's just sitting and thinking all the thousands of thoughts and not even trying to push them away or doing a deeper meditation, which is sitting and watching the thoughts because the thoughts never, ever go away. I walk in the woods. I've started drawing again, which is really nice, but I've done something new, which is, and this started during the pandemic where we were all quarantined and stuck at home. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to start drawing with my left hand and I'm going to throw out everything I've drawn. So I separated the experience from the outcome, which is really hard for a perfectionist like me. Mm -hmm. And that perfectionism kept me from being creative, from drawing, Mm -hmm. because it was like, can I hang that up? Would somebody want that? And I was like, nope, separate that out. So Mm -hmm. now I just draw either with my left hand or I started doing watercolor and just screw what the end piece looks like. Just enjoy the process, which has also taken many years. And I have to remind myself and catch myself when I don't do that. Being in the woods is probably the most nurturing for me. Mm -hmm. Getting enough sleep, not a joke. I've written about this. If I don't get enough sleep, I I can't be, uh, I'm a mess. When I'm more easy to cry or lose my cool or whatever. And I'm also four years in Al-Anon which is for family and friends of loved ones who are alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And this Al-Anon group is an amazing group of humans. And I have many alcoholics and addicts in my life whom I love very much. Some mm-hmm. are in recovery, some are not. It doesn't matter. I love them all. And so learning the serenity prayer in the deep way that I have learned it has changed my life. Mm-hmm. And now I find that in a time of crisis, that I'm sitting there in crisis and suddenly I am basically chanting the serenity prayer Mm -hmm. and not even aware of the words, but just, you know, like somebody would do with a rosary bead is my guess, just mindfully, detachedly, it will be okay. Mm -hmm. Asking for that help of whatever, but you don't have to believe in a God. You can just say, grant me serenity. Grant me the serenity, grant me the courage, grant me the wisdom. And it's, it's incredibly powerful. Well, you, I, I've heard it, but would you mind saying it for folks? Oh, I would love to. And then may I walk you through my serenity prayer, fill in the blank? <laughs> yes, please share the serenity prayer and this other piece that you've added to it. Okay, great. So the serenity prayer, which I have hanging in front of my, next to my computer so that I can always see it, even though I don't need it, is... And you can say God if you have a God of your understanding, or you don't have to. You can skip it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, I want to apply to this what I call fill in the blanks. 
So for me, it would be something like, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. COVID's back, right? And my sister had it and my child had it. And now a good friend of mine has it and it's scary. Uh, Courage to change the things I can. Okay, so I can physically wear a mask if I want to. More importantly for me is to change my mindset. Do I want to live in fear? Do I want to go in hiding? How do I want to handle it, right? So it's about my mindset and the wisdom to know the difference. What can I change? What can I not change? Give me serenity is really what it's about. Mm-hmm. So I do that all day long. Thank, Thank you for you. sharing. Sure. What does success look like to you? Uh, feeling good about my work, um, feeling that I'm truly helping people and bringing compassion to the world, um, uh, helping people feel safe, and um, having enough money to live a really fun life. That sounds great. Who do you typically work with or who do you find thrives with your service? The people I typically work with are people who are interested when they hear the word compassion as a business tool. Those people who are interested in learning about that more are the people I want to work with uh, because that means that they are open-minded. I am less wedded to, are they going to absolutely do what I teach them? That doesn't really make my day. What makes my day is, and therefore, when I show up most fully, and therefore people who want to work with me are those people who learn the concepts and then apply it in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great distinction. Thank you. For folks who are listening and that want to learn more about what you do or follow you, how do they do that? What's the best way for them to connect in or stay aware of what, what you're doing, or what you're up to? So my name is Rena DeLevy. My website is renadelevy.com. You can also find me on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn at Rena DeLevy. So I've just tried to keep it very consistent. Yeah, there you go. Nice. And you can go to my site and opt in to join my uh, mailing list. I will tell you, I send an email quarterly, like really infrequently, only when it's really got something juicy. I don't bombard people. I can't stand that. So yeah. And my emails are short and fun. Nice. Yeah. I'll probably go sign up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk uh, to me today and to come back. And I look forward to getting to interact with you more on a variety of topics. (laughs) Me too. Thank you so much, Aisola. I really enjoyed talking with you. And yeah, I just, I love everything you're doing to help make the world a better place. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.